read once more from the first epistle of Peter, chapter 4. First Peter 4. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, reveling, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. For the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. And above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as of the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God 
commit their keeping of their souls to him in well-doing, as unto a faithful creator. Let us also give heed to the law of God. God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thyself any graven image, nor the likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt do no manner of work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. We want to call your attention this morning, as we promised you two weeks ago, <coughs> to the verses 3 through 5 of First Peter 4, which I would like to read once more with you. 1 Peter 4, verses 3 to 5. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. I think most of you will recall how that two weeks ago, Sunday morning, we called your attention to the first two verses of this chapter, and particularly under the theme, Armed for Suffering. And in delineation of that theme, we called your attention, first of all, to armed for what? And 
and we explain to you how that the apostle here has in mind not just suffering in general, although we said at that time that that is necessary that we be prepared for that too, but <clears throat> the suffering is of a particular, peculiar nature, namely the suffering of reproach that is brought upon us by the world of the wicked in which we dwell. We also in that connection pointed out to you that there is an aspect of the suffering of Christ <clears throat> which is incumbent upon us. There is also an aspect of the suffering of Christ which we need not nor cannot bear, namely the suffering which he bore uh, to accomplish the atonement and the satisfaction for our sins. But the apostle doesn't have that aspect of the suffering of Christ in mind when he speaks of that suffering as falling also upon his church. I think he was finished with that, as I pointed out to you in chapter 3, verse 18, where he tells us that Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. But there is an aspect of the suffering of Christ, which I believe the scriptures warn us to say, rubs off on the people of God, so that as they hated him and reproached him, despised him, killed him, so they will reproach and despise and hate and kill you. Now that's what the apostle is talking about in this entire context. Uh, to the end of this chapter. And it appears that in the day in which this epistle was written, that that intense suffering was eminent. As I believe I pointed out to you, an edict had gone out from the Roman emperor to persecute and to kill the Christians. Peter, undoubtedly aware of this, is sending this epistle to the faithful, to the elect strangers throughout the entire empire as they were dispersed over the face of the earth and to not only instruct them but also to encourage them to be faithful in the midst of that suffering. They must be armed for suffering if they are going to endure. And in the second place, therefore, we call your attention to armed how? Namely, with the mind of Christ. Uh, at least that's the first aspect of this armament. The thought that was in 
Christ's mind that controlled him, that principled him as he walked the way of obedience in the midst of the world, bearing the reproaches of the world, is the mind that must be also in us. The thought that controlled him, that kept him walking always in the path of obedience, is the thought that must also be in our mind. Namely, that I must be obedient unto my heavenly calling, that I may not turn to the right or to the left, my eyes must look straight on, no matter what comes, what the consequences will be. Moreover, that mind of Christ also has this in it, that he who thus suffers cease from sin. Now we all know, of course, that Christ had no sin. That he was perfect in every respect. As he also, when he faced his adversary, he said, Which of you accuses me of sin? There was not. So that he always walked in the way of truth and obedience, according to God's law, with us, there is something different. We too have ceased from sin, principally. Not to understand that we don't sin anymore. I called your attention to that. John tells us in First uh, John 1, 8 and 9, uh, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that uh, this uh, always obtained in the life of the child of God. He is sinning and he's confessing. And in confession he is he obtains the assurance of righteousness. This is constant in the life of the child of God. So this meaning cannot possibly mean uh, that we don't sin anymore. But principally that's true. Principally we are holy through Christ. We don't sin anymore. In God's sight, we are righteous. And when we suffer in the midst of the world, for Christ's sake, then this thought must be in us, I suffer for Christ's sake because I'm righteous. I am holy before God. That's the reason. That mind must be in us. That thought must keep us always walking in the straight line of God's will. And then I pointed out to you in conclusion, for what purpose? Armed for suffering for what end? What purpose? And that too, of course, is uh, clearly indicated in the 
verses 1 and 2, that we no longer live according to the lust of men, but according to the will of God. And I told you at that time that I wasn't going to say very much about those lusts of men because I knew if I would come today and would speak to you on the succeeding verses in this chapter that I would have to repeat, and I don't choose to do that. So this morning, I'd like to call your attention to uh, what I consider to be the further explanation of our present suffering, as it is set forth in the verses 3 to 5 of this chapter. I'd like to notice with you, uh, first of all, wherein this consists, that is, this explanation consists, for the Apostle is explaining in the verses 3 to 5 how it comes about that we have to suffer, why we suffer in the midst of the world. In the second place, I must call your attention, because that's the intention of the text, to the extent of this suffering. And finally, to the comfort for the persecuted. For I assure you that these words of our text are intended to be a consolation to the children of God. The consolation is that they do not go unobserved by the Lord, but they are in his eye, and he will surely take care of those persecuted, as is indicated in verse 5 of our text. That our text is an explanation of the verses 1 and 2 of this chapter is plain from that little word for, which introduces verse 3. For the time past of our life may suffice us, etc. And sometimes that little word for is used, and the Apostle Paul loves to use that little word, uh, for argumentation. Uh, the Apostle, you know, especially in his epistles to the Romans, is argumentative. And uh, he explains a certain truth, and then he says, now if that's the case, then this also follows for this uh, reason this follows, so that that word for indicates a certain reason for something. But it can also have in it the idea of uh, explanation, uh, an explanatory idea, and that undoubtedly is the idea of that word for here in this text. There is, the apostle here is not reasoning something, but he is going to delineate, to further explain something, which he began in verses 1 and 2, where, as I said, he exhorts us to be armed for suffering. 
Why is it that you and I, why is it that the Church of Christ is required to suffer and to suffer this kind of suffering in the midst of the world? How does that come about? There must be some reason for it. There must be an explanation for that. This isn't just purely accidental. And so, the Apostle says, I will tell you how it comes about that you are required to suffer in the midst of the world. You notice that the text, especially in verse 3, indicates that there has been a change in conduct on the part of those to whom this epistle is written. There was a time in their life when they lived and walked like the children of this world. And they delved into all kinds of corruptions which are here briefly enumerated in verse 3 of our text. Uh, they were uh, living in the world of wickedness like the wicked. They were heathen to all intents and purposes in their life and in their walk. But now that no longer was true of them. They were converted. They were changed. They no longer lived and walked according to the will of the heathen, the counsel of the heathen. I want to call your attention to that, that this is very important, too, that we see this. When we read here, for the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentile. That word will there, is a word which often in Scripture is translated counsel. It's not just simply the will of command, as, for example, I will that you do this, or I will that you do that. But this idea of will here is a premeditated plan. So that you gain the impression from this text, beloved, that the world of the wicked has plans for you and for all the citizens of this world. They have a council. God has a council, and according to that council, all things transpire and take place in history. Precisely as he ordained that. But the world also has a council. They have plans for you that will deny God, will delve into sin and corruption contrary to his will, and serve and seek themselves in mad pleasure. That's the counsel of the world. This word counsel appears more often in Scripture. I just want to call your attention just to one passage 
that will clarify, I think, what I want to proceed with you this morning as far as this term is concerned. I have in mind uh, what you read in Acts 27, verse 43. This was in connection, you know, with the uh, shipwreck of the Apostle Paul and the prisoners that were being transported from Jerusalem to Rome. You remember the Apostle Paul and those who were with him on the ship suffered shipwreck. And in verse 43, you read this, But the centurion, willing to save Paul, kept them from their purpose. You see, those soldiers that were on there, plus the captain of the ship, had decided that they were going to kill all of the prisoners because they sensed that if the ship was broken to pieces, they might escape. And so they were going to kill them all. But the centurion, who had great respect for the apostles, uh, thought about that. He thought to himself, but I mustn't allow that to happen. Uh, there is something about that man, Paul, that makes me leery of the whole business. So you have that word, the, but the centurion willing. That means he thought within himself, he counseled with himself to save Paul, kept them from their purpose, that is, their counsel. That same word is found under the word willing and under purpose in this text. And both of them are the same word that's found in our text, where it's translated will. So the idea is, while the, uh, the captain and the soldiers counseled together what they were going to do with those prisoners, including Paul, the centurion counseled with his own mind, his own soul, and he also made plans, and he decided that they were not going to kill him. And that, of course, is what was, was accomplished there. Paul's life was spared through the counsel which that centurion had in his own soul, and which he undoubtedly revealed to the rest of those passengers on this ship. Now, that idea is also here in this text. The world has a counsel. They have plans. To put it very succinctly, the world has plans for you. Maybe you don't know that. Maybe you don't realize that. Maybe this never even came up in your soul. But you must see this in this text. That's what Peter said. That world of the wicked, of the Gentiles, the heathen, has a counsel. And according to their predetermined, premeditated plan, all the citizens of this world must live and manifest themselves. They must conform to that plan. Now let me say something here, because otherwise you might conclude, well, that may, be, may have been true in the day that Peter was talking about. And that may have been applicable to those children of God in that day to whom this epistle is written. But what does that have to do with me? 
Well, I want to point out to you, beloved, that this plan, this council of the world, has never changed. That still is today. Only we ought to understand that their plans are much more pronounced today than they've ever been before. Let me try to illustrate that. You have heard, undoubtedly, the philosophy, God is dead. <clears throat> you, you all heard about that, I guess. They, you hear that today. This is being preached, you see, from uh, pulpits. It's being written in the religious periodicals of our time. This is not just simply in the newspapers and in Life magazine or Time magazine. No, no, no. This is this is being preached today by the modern church. God is dead. Now, where did that come from? Is that something new? Well, it may be a little further uh, pronounced than it has ever been before, but the idea is as old as the world. God is dead. That life that, that belongs to the plan of the council of the world, that's what we must say. We must say God is living, because if he's living, then we have to reckon with him. But we must say he is dead. And then, of course, you don't have to fear him. You don't even have to have him in your thoughts. He simply is passed out of our life. You can live and do as you please. And then, of course, along with that, because there's a religious tinge. I'm going to come back to this in a moment. There's a religious tinge to this council of the wicked. They have to do that in order to get everybody interested, don't you? and to conform to their plan. It goes along with this, the corruption, the carnal corruption, which the apostle here is calling to our attention in verse 3. Notice, when we walk in lasciviousness, lust, Excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatry. Now, when you have a series like this, which happens often in the scripture, generally either that first word in the series or the last word in the series is the general term. And the rest are explanatory of that general term. That's the case here too. Only the first word in this series is the general term. That word that is translated here, lasciviousness. That word lasciviousness explains and describes all of the corruptions that follow in this text. Lust, excess of wine, reveling, banquetings, and abominable idolatry. Now, fundamentally, lasciviousness is lust. Uh... Carnal passion. That's what lasciviousness is. But the apostle mentions in the next, very next word, lust. 
So he would certainly not repeat himself here. And he intends us to understand our text thus, by lasciviousness, all abominable and corrupt behavior. Everything that smacks of corruption is under this term lasciviousness. And then this abominable and corrupt behavior is further delineated by these lusts. Now, we came across that word lust before in verse 2, you remember, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. So that here, that lust of which we spoke uh, to you in verse 2 comes back again and is intended to be here uh, inordinate passion, desire, carnal desire. And fundamentally, underneath this lust undoubtedly is sexual attraction, uh, sexual carnality. That's the term lust that belongs to this uh, corrupt behavior. Does that sound familiar today? That's all you hear about. The newspapers, magazines, television, radio, advertising, all carnal sexual appeal and corruption. I don't know that it has ever been so pronounced. They even have uh, tried to promote sex education. Mind you, these little children, five years old, and you're going to explain to them the whole operation of sex. That's what's going on. It's going around about us all around in our country today. And this isn't just isolated here in this country, but all over the world. Where does that come from? Is this something that somebody sucked out of their thumb somewhere and, they, and is imposing on our on our people? Oh no, that belongs to the plan, the council, the council of the world. Only today, more so than it ever was, it's pronounced homosexuality. Never heard of anything like it, but it is new. They had that in Sodom. That was exactly the sin of Sodom. Where men leave the normal, natural course, and men with men working that which is unseemly. And the same is true of women. This is what's going on in our world. But it isn't anything new. It's according to Hoyle, if you will allow me to use that expression. According to plan, the world has planned for you. 
And I want our young people to hear this, too, because this is the world that they're living in. With all of this, this carnal passion, sexual desire, that all belongs to the plan which the world has for the children of God and for all of their citizens. Notice, excess of wine. Well, you know, if you're going to go along with all of this sexual lust business, then you have to be a little bit insensitive, so you drink wine. And you drink it so that you bubble over with it. You drink too much. There's nothing wrong with drinking wine. Paul tells Timothy, you better take some for your stomach's sake when you're sick to your stomach. You have some physical ailment that's good for you. But when it begins to bubble over so that you can't contain it anymore, then you get drunk, then you get insensitive. And that's what the world has too in their plan for you. They don't want you to be sensitive. If you're going to be lustful and carnal and sexual and all of that, then you must also be physically prepared for that through drunkenness. Excess of wine. And then notice too that the apostle says next, revelings and banqueting. These two go together, of course. And men don't just simply go off on a tangent someplace all alone and in isolation commit this, but the plan is that we do it together. And we do that under those circumstances in which we can all rejoice and have a real good time reveling and banqueting, feasting, joyous, joyful gatherings in which the world will gather in hilarity and fun and indulge in all of this corruption. And notice finally that the apostle also puts a religious tinge to it when he says, an abominable idolatry. That isn't just accidental, you know, that belongs with it. The world also is formerly religious. That's why there's no atheists. There cannot be. Or there may be those who say, I don't want to believe in God. That's something else. But no man can ever say there is any God. God won't let him. Nor do they do that. They always are religious. No matter where you go, you can go to the Hottentots in Africa, and they're bowing down and worshiping before their idol. Is an idol or the living God? They all worship. They have their service, their religious service. And all of that belongs to the plan, to the council of the world. And in that plan, you don't need to go to heaven. All of your cares and your needs will be taken care of. All you have to do is live along with the plan. And you have no trouble. You see? The world will never do anything to you if you live according to that plan. You'll be well liked. If anything happens to you, they take care of you. 
Your house burns down, they build another one for you. They put all the furniture in. You get a leg cut off, they send you to a hospital. They'll give you an artificial leg. And they give you all kinds of uh, uh, subsidies on top of that so that you're well taken care of. You don't have to feel for anything. Isn't that nice? The world has organizations, too, of course, which uh, carry out this council, this plan. Secret society, unions. If you join with that, you're taken care of for the rest of your earthly life. Don't be afraid of anything. You never have any trouble. Doesn't that sound familiar? That's what Peter's talking about. There's nothing new what we hear today. It's been there always. It's always been there. The only thing is, now as we come to the end of the age, when the devil and the Antichrist, more than any time in history, hurt themselves to carry out their plan, because back of this council, you see, is the devil. And the Antichrist presently will be the uh, physical manifestation of the mind of Satan, who will also bring all of this counsel back so that you cannot buy or sell without the mark of the beast. Now the apostle says that time in which you lived according to that counsel is past. Really, in the original text, I could translate this like this enough of that rottenness. That corruption, that cesspool of corruption in which you live in time past, let that forever be gone, as far as you are concerned. You've been delivered from that. Once you went in that direction, with all your heart and mind and soul and strength, but now things have changed. You're going in the opposite direction. You've been converted. The time of that is past. That's what he says. For the time past. Really, the time is past of our life in which we wrought the counsel of the Gentiles. When we walk in all this corruption, And now you're going in the opposite direction. Can't you understand, beloved, how that, that world will become amazed at you? They will be uh, thoroughly amazed 
us in verse 4, the verse, first part there, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot. They think it strange. They're struck with surprise. They hadn't looked for anything like that. And not only uh, because of the change, but also because of the suddenness of the change. They are amazed. Uh, the world, of course, will not stand to have its counsel frustrated or denied. They will not stand for that. And when you do not go along with that, you are naughty. But I think this amazement has in it other implications. Namely, that that world of the wicked cannot understand the sweet operation of grace. They can't understand that. And for that reason, when they see the child of God changed so that he does not live and walk according to the former characteristics, according to plan. And then they wonder, what makes that man tick? What is it that makes him do what he does? In the light of the normal way of life, that is, the way of the wicked, is that so easy? You don't have to deny yourself anything. You just simply live out your life to the full. In no matter what it is, corruption or what have you, but to deny yourself that and to live according to grace in which you walk in obedience to the will of God that they can't understand. What makes that man sick? They're amazed. But you know, if they would only stay just with that amazement, it wouldn't be so bad. But that world, after a while, after it becomes true a little bit, begins to sense, you know, that there, there is not going to be another change back into that corruption, but that they're going to go straight on in the way of the fear of God, and the world will become hateful and will begin to impose upon you suffering and persecution. You will become the object of intense ridicule. <coughs> That's what he is talking about in verses 1 and 2. And again a little later, as I pointed out to you two weeks ago in, in the latter part of this chapter, where he speaks of the fiery trial and also of suffering as a Christian. The world loves those that love them. If you walk with the world, you conform to the counsel of the world, there will be no difficulty, no trouble. 
world will be friendly with those who conform to their plan. But the world hates those who walk not according to her principles. I'm going to ask you something. And see what your answer is. In the light of what I have said so far, where could you ever find any semblance of common grace? You know, the world, we are told, also participates in a certain common grace of God. So they aren't quite as bad as they could become if they didn't have this grace. In the light of this text, in the light of what I have said so far, where, where would you find something like that in this world? This, this so-called common grace. Beloved, and let's see it because that's exactly the truth here. The world hates God. The world hates Christ. And if the world could get its hands on God and on Christ, they would kill him. I believe I mentioned this two weeks ago, but it will bear this repetition. God, one time, in the middle of history, said, I'm going to give you a chance. And so he came in the person of his son into human nature. And he says, here I am. Let me see now what you will do with me. And you know what they said. Crucify him! Crucify him! Away with him! There is no place for such a one in our plan, in our world. And God took his son to heaven. They can't attack God anymore. My beloved, and this is what Jesus said to you and me, in the world you will have tribulation because you belong to me. If you are followers of me, as they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So, the world, because it can't get its hand on God, you know, gets its hand on you. The world hates you. Oh, don't fall for that philosophy that the world is gracious. That due to a certain common grace of God that it isn't as bad as it could be. That world hates God. That world hates Christ. That world hates the church. The world hates God's word. God's grace. The revelation of that grace. Everything that smacks of God and of Christ, the world hates. 
There's no room for it. And it's black. Consequently, they will reproach you. They will persecute you. And you'll notice that in the last part of verse 4, they say, the apostle says, speaking evil of you. That word of you is in italics. That means it isn't in the original text. So that you may read verse 4 like this, simply speaking evil. And that word speaking evil here comes from that same word from which our word blasphemy is derived. Now you understand, of course, that when the world blasphemes, it blasphemes God and Christ. Blasphemes God and his Christ. And everything that appears to them of God and of Christ in you. Not you are blasphemed, but God is blasphemed in you. Christ is blasphemed in you. And that's the ultima of the world's hatred. Oh, you have the cross exemplified again and again in history of the suffering church. And the word of Christ is fulfilled again and again throughout the history of God's church and covenant in the world. As they hated me, so they will hate you. You know anything about that hatred? The world hate you? You sure about that? They ever do anything bad to you? They ever take you and persecute you? You better ask yourself that question, you know. And if that is not so, what is the reason for that? How is that? How is it that you and I don't suffer today. Is that because that world is changing? The world is getting better? Or it has probably more common grace than it's ever had before? Is that the reason? Don't you ever believe it? It's because you and I are not always what we ought to be. Oh, I assure you that there are times when this persecution becomes more intense than in others, and that too is under, not the world's plan, but under God's plan. Don't forget it. God stands behind also the counsel of the wicked, realizing his own counsel. Don't forget about that. God is in his heaven. And he also has periods in the history of his church when the church is not required to suffer. But that's the most dangerous time in the history of the church. For the church. 
I can show to you, if I had the time this morning, from the pages of history, how that the church flourished most when the blood of the church was being poured out on the streets of Jerusalem and on the streets of the world. That's when the world, when the church of Christ flourished the most. Spiritually. And in every other way. I think it can be shown to you that when the church was persecuted and the history of the church was as it is, we are told, written with a pen of blood, that then the church expanded and grew by leaps and bounds in the midst of the world. That's the history of the church. Not when she was uh, materially rich. Not when she had a place in the world where she could live body-body along with the world. And uh, affiliate with the world's endeavors. You know, they, they tried to get us to do that. I get letters, I have to throw them in file 13 every week. Come and help us. We've got uh, social problems here. And that we're going to get caught up with. Don't forget, we're going to get caught up with someday by them. They're going to find out what's the matter with us. What, why we don't go along with that. But we got to get busy. The church has to get busy. Working in the social problems. we got to get into the ghetto. we got to get into society. we got to let our light shine in the world. We have to have what they call a social gospel. That fits in with the plan of the world. But when you don't have a social gospel, when you preach only the gospel, and when you tell them that you may not preach a social gospel, and that that is not the calling of the church, but it is the calling of the church to live out of the principle of grace, of regeneration, in the midst of the world of sin and darkness, to live as the pedigree over against all the powers of evil, and to demonstrate that not merely by being mere professors of the truth, but livers of the truth. And the world will have nothing to do with you, except to persecute you unto the death. And what I've been speaking about now, as far as the calling of the church is concerned, is the calling of every individual child of God. And as soon as that becomes known and revealed, when you don't live according to their plan, you'll be persecuted. And persecuted unto the death. But don't have any fear about that. Everything is all right. The Lord is in the heaven. And therefore you read, Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? This is not merely intended, you know, to tell us what is going to happen to the wicked who persecute you. That belongs to it. But it is intended for the children of God who must be faithful and who must suffer. So Peter means to say, have no fear of this. 
the Lord who also has this council is in the heavens. And he watches over his church, over his beloved. And he will take them to task who catch the apple of his eye. He will bring them to judgment. And in that judgment, he shall condemn them whoever lacks instruction. And you, who must also appear in that judgment, shall be thoroughly acquitted and justified. They shall be called into account. The counsel of the wicked shall come to naught. Because the counsel of the living God uses the counsel of the wicked to accomplish his own purpose. The exaltation and the final glory of his name and of his covenant. Be faithful, therefore, beloved even unto death, and you shall receive the crown of life that fadeth not away. Amen. Sanctify, O Lord, thy word unto our hearts, and grant that in the time to come we may live it faithfully unto the end knowing that when we stand in the midst of the world as thy peculiar people, we must bear the reproaches of Christ. And we must also be willing, even if necessary, 